sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love, the government of the government love, the government of the government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for a bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. With me today is political and policy analyst Kristen Matheny. Hey, Kristen, how you doing? I am doing okay. You know, it's it's interesting. Every week goes by, and Monday or Tuesday, I think, gee, it's kind of a slow week. And then the next thing I know, it's like, oh my gosh, how are we going to fit in everything we need to fit in? It never fails. I should learn by now. But uh, but we do have another pretty busy week. A lot of stuff to talk about. And you know, I thought maybe the thing we should start with is uh, on Thursday, the Senate voted 59 to 41 to rescind President Trump's national emergency declaration. And in that vote, 12 Republicans joined all 47 Senate Democrats opposing it. And of course, that follows that similar vote in the House, and that margin was 245 to 182, but only 13 House Republicans voted against the emergency there. And uh, President Trump, of course, uh, to, to nobody's surprise, vetoed this. And given the fact that neither chamber passed it with a two-thirds majority, I'd say it's pretty certain that this veto won't be overridden. So I think that kind of brings us up to date on this. Uh, what do you make of the vote, Kristen? Well, you know, I think that... Um when it comes to, you know, President Trump, and I've said this before on the show, uh, everything he does is with an eye on re-election. I don't think that's any different from any other candidate. You know, I've, I've made no secret about the fact that I feel that way. And I think that he is definitely thinking about his campaign promises, again, as I've said. Uh, I think that he is looking to 2020. I think he knows that if he doesn't make headway on this, and if that wall doesn't get constructed, or at least is on the way to being constructed, I think he knows, and I think most of us Republicans know, uh, that his chances for re-election go down. Uh, I don't think they're completely lost, but I think they go down significantly, if I'm just being honest. So, I think that, you know, the veto it shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. Uh, I fully expected it to happen. I think most pundits fully expected it to happen. And also the fact that uh, it was voted down in the Senate doesn't surprise me one bit either. Um, I think and, you know, I am surprised by a couple of the Republicans who, you know, turned on uh, declaring the emergency vote. Um, you've got people like uh, Senator Rand Paul. Uh, Marco Rubio surprised me. I'm a Floridian. That one surprised me a little bit. I thought he would stand with the president on that. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it, it seems to me that most of the Republicans who voted against it weren't voting against it because they are anti-wall, but it was right. more a question of executive overreach. And so in that sense, I mean, someone like a Rand Paul, that totally makes sense. And Mike Lee, of course, is in that camp as well, and some others. And, and so I, I think it put Republicans in a, in a difficult spot because, of course, many congressional Republicans had spent the eight years previous to the Trump presidency railing against executive overreach. But it's a lot harder to rail against executive overreach when it's a president in your own party. And, you know, I think a lot of people would say, well, he's a really unpopular president, but not among Republicans, you know? I mean, even so, you look at, you know, 42, 41% overall favorability, but in the Republican Party, he's still, I think they're in the 80s and so, and so, you know, going against him is, is a pretty rough thing. And I think there was only 
one Republican who's up for re-election next time at Susan Collins, who actually voted for the resolution. And I think that says that says a lot. I think, you know, it's not just President Trump who's, who's eyeing re-election here. Right. And, you know, it's funny. I've talked to a lot of fellow Republicans. I personally tend to side with Rand Paul on a lot of issues. And uh, the issue of um, this executive overreach and um you know, during the Obama administration was a really big issue. And like you mentioned, for eight years, you know, we Republicans railed against this. And Rand Paul was one of the loudest, loudest voices, as was Mike Lee. Um, and I, this doesn't surprise me. Um, I tend to, you know, I, I think when I heard about Rand Paul making the vote he did, I kind of said, oh, man, you know, I, I thought that maybe he would come through. But it doesn't surprise me that he didn't. I think he he makes some very valid points about executive overreach and, and declaring emergency in a situation like this. But I also think that, you know, these senators aren't stupid. They knew that the president would veto this. Um, you know, wh- whether or not that comes into play, I don't know. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and it, it probably it seems to me that it, it probably won't come come into play and that there aren't the votes to override it. But it's possible, and so some have suggested it's possible that Congress's majority vote against this may at least come into, in part, uh, the, the federal court's deliberations as to, you know, the intent of Congress and what the president's done and, and whether or not this was a way to get around congressional intent and sort of usurp Congress's spending authority and so forth. I, I don't know, you know, how much of a role that would play, but certainly this isn't the kind of thing that helps the president in the court battles that are that are sure to come. Right. You know, he's definitely stacked the courts in his favor up until now. And I think that, you know, resting too much on his laurels at this point, thinking that this is going to be court battle after court battle. I mean, obviously, you've got, you know, more liberal circuits who will, you know, hold him off at every pass. But I think he knows that that generally the courts are stacked in his favor and that he's been a big part of making that happen. Um, whether or not he's taking that for granted, I don't know. Yeah. Well, you know, I think certainly the one court that matters most, obviously, is the Supreme Court, to which he's already appointed two justices. And but 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 it seems to me that on, on these sort of matters, you know, it, the justice that I'm most interested in, I think, will be the most interesting to watch when it gets to this point. Will be Justice Roberts. Uh, Roberts. Yeah, exactly. And I would not, I would not at all be surprised to see a five to four vote against the president with, with Roberts on the, uh, on the, uh, majority side against President Trump. He's, he's been, he's disappointed conservatives a lot in the past. And, and one of the things I really like about Justice Roberts, even though in terms of judicial philosophy, he and I don't disagree, it seems to me that he's not the sort of person who first finds his preferred outcome, and then sort of crafts his judicial philosophy to get to that end, at least not as much as some justices. And I can at least respect that in kind of the same way that I can respect Rand Paul and Mike Lee, even though in terms of policy, we're, we're, we're just miles and miles apart. Right. Yeah, I, I, I actually was just talking to my husband the other night about this, and I said the same thing. I'm always interested to see what Robert has and again, you know, for the same reason that you as, you know, a more liberal American would look to him and, and you know, you may disagree with him in terms of, uh, you know, ideology, you have respect for him. In the same way I have 
I have respect for as someone who has a lot of, uh, I guess, animosity towards bias, especially in the court, and just bias in general. Um, I've become pretty skeptical of, of everybody in Washington, and, and I'm skeptical of Supreme Court justices. I think a lot of them legislate from the bench, and I disagree with Roberts on a, on a lot of his rulings, but I am very also very interested to see where he falls on this issue. Yeah. Um, and I yeah. think it's a 50-50 proposition. He could really decide either way, and it also remains to be seen what's presented in front of the Supreme Court, too. There may be angles to this story that we don't know about. I mean, what's being played out in the media is awfully politicized. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, one other thing that, that I that I think I think a lot of people on the left are sort of thinking about, or at least hoping about, I don't know, is that no matter what happens, that this can be dragged out long enough so that with any luck and, you know, the universe willing, uh, uh, President Trump is no longer President Trump come January of, you know, 2021 and and no wall construction would have started. And then, of course, everything can go back to more, more as, as we on the left like to think of as a more sane, better America than this than this for horrific kind of kind of year period sort of thing. So and I think, you know, that there's a real good chance that that happens, because given all the legal hurdles. I think it would be difficult to imagine, at least from my mind, cons- real construction starting any time before, you know, uh, 2021, really. Oh, sure. I, I don't think that that's going to be happening anytime soon. We've, we've talked on the show about uh, the fact that you've got a lot of private land and that wall would yep. need to be on private land. And there are, of course, issues there. Um, you know, it, it's going to be a mess of, of legal headache after headache. Um, yeah. And and it's going to it either way, no matter which side of, you know, the, the wall argument you fall on, it's going to be a long process and it's going to be a major, I guess, a, a major calling card for each side during 2020. So, you know, I, I expect nothing but ramping up of this. Don't don't find yourself getting tired of the wall conversation because it's about to continue and it's about to ramp up. That's yeah. all I have. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think we'll be coming back to this a lot as it works through the works through the courts. And once we get into campaign season in, in real, that's definitely going to be uh, uh, no matter how tired we might be of talking about the wall. It's awfully important, as you pointed out. So uh, more later on that. Anyway, um, moving on, you know, the uh, U.S. Federal Aviation Administration for a long time, it's been well, essentially kind of led the world when it comes to air travel regulation. but this week, it found itself in an unusual and, and I would say kind of uncomfortable position, and that, that's the position of following instead of leading. You know, after that Ethiopian, Air, Ethiopian Airlines Boeing 737 MAX 8 crashed on Sunday, and of course that was the second one in less than six months, well, China actually took the lead and on Monday grounded the plane. And then after that, almost every other country in the world did the same. And it with Canada and U.S. were the lone holdouts. And then on Wednesday, the U.S. finally joins everyone else in, in banning or in grounding the plane. And, you know, there are some people who say, well, hey, this this probably reflects the political influence of Boeing, which, you know, is it's the world's second largest defense contractor. Uh, it's a huge company. It's 2018 revenues were over one hundred billion dollars, which is an all time high for the company. And and there were a lot of people saying, well, you know, that the CEO of Boeing was talking with Donald Trump. And and maybe this is a case where uh, uh, the, FA, the FAA was politically pressured into jeopardizing public safety safety for the sake of a big American company. Um, I, what do you think, Kristen? 
Well, I think, of course, there's something to uh, to the ties between Boeing and, and the government. Um, I view it less as a political issue and more of just kind of in the larger scope as a problem that we have with, you know, big companies being tied to the government, these problematic contracts and special interests and things like that. And I, and I don't think, you know, for, for Republicans to say this is a Democrat problem or for Democrats to say this is a Republican problem, I think is really missing the mark. I, I think this is more about just a problematic relationship overall. And I don't think this is any exception. I, I can't really speculate as to what was going on behind the scenes, but I'd have to imagine this is the only explanation as to why. I mean, unless the FAA was saying that they wanted to run special trials or, you know, they wanted to test the aircraft or maybe, you know, attempt to, uh, you know, regulate it, make it better, something like that. I can't imagine a scenario where the special interests of, you know, between Boeing and the government weren't in play here. So, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious what's going on. Well, you know, I heard an incredibly uncomfortable interview with the uh, the head of the uh, F- the acting head of the FAA, and 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 basically he was saying, well, you know, we because the the reporter asked him, so why didn't you ground these things? And he said, well, we didn't have all the evidence in, and we wanted to wait and right. see. And so the reporter said, so what you're saying is, in absence of the evidence, you erred not on the side of caution, but on the side of just letting it letting them fly. And and he didn't really have a good answer for that because I don't think there was a good answer for that. You know, I think they really stepped in it uh, on this, um, for one. And and secondly, I think, you know, it really demonstrates what happened around the world, demonstrates how the world has changed in the last 20, 30 years or so. I mean, China has something like a quarter of all of these Boeing 737 MAX 8s planes. So when they when they act in this area and in so many other areas now, they have the kind of muscle that the kind of sway that makes a lot of other countries act in concert with them. And so it's not, I think we're so used to the U.S. just having such a mighty footprint that what we do, everyone else will kind of follow along with. But, you know, we're, we're really starting to see that change. And I think this is a good example of that. Yeah, I it's funny because the the responses from these, you know, all of these interviews that I, that I was reading and all of these articles I was reading about this, this case, the, the responses from different FAA officials and, you know, different officials with the government, they were saying things sort of like these, um, these, I, we can either confirm or deny type of answers yeah. and, and very, very vague. And, and it, it's the equivalent of, you know, when I was on a debate team in high school or in college or whatever, and it was sort of one of those, well, you know, we, we don't have an answer, but we'll, we're going to do the research and get back to you sort of a thing. It's just a path along. And, yeah. and you know, I, I just, I don't think that there's any way around it, no matter, you know, if, if, if you favor, um, you know, the I guess the argument that the FAA really was going to investigate these things, I, I think sometimes we just use that as an excuse. And I think this is a perfect example of that. And it just seems like kind of a pass off. And, um, you know, the, the fact that that other countries were looking to China and to other places around the world for guidance on this issue is a little alarming as somebody who, you know, believes in American exceptionalism. I think that that should be a wake up call. Yeah. And hopefully it is. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one other aspect of this is some people are wondering how, if this is going to hurt Boeing. I mean, their their stock price took a, a little bit of a hit, but really they're they're doing just fine. And in part, it's because the, that the large aircraft market is a really weird market because basically you've got Boeing and you've got Airbus. And so, and it's not like, 
you know, going from Boeing to Airbus is, you know, like trading in your Civic for a Corolla or something like that. I mean, there's, there's a lot involved in building up these fleets and training pilots and so forth. And so, and, and of course, as someone who's very market, market oriented yourself, you certainly obviously appreciate when you have such a lack of competition for some understandable structural reasons that gives these companies an awful lot of an awful lot of clout and an awful lot of market power that it oftentimes is not in the best interest of, of the consumer. Oh, definitely. Um, you know, I, I'm not about, you know, there's been so much talk in the media about breaking up these big companies and these big conglomerates lately. And I, and I, I think that there's a fine line, you know, between letting the free market be the free market, um, which I'm all about, but at the same time, ensuring that, you know, smaller companies have the opportunity to compete. But when you have a juggernaut like Boeing or Airbus or something like that, I, I think that these are questions we have to discuss. And I think they have to be discussed in the government. And I think it's, you know, the source of a lot of these problems is that when you develop these comfortable relationships between these big companies and the government, and there are these lobbying relationships, and, you know, you get politicians who are bought and paid for, they're uncomfortable conversations, but we have to have them. And if nothing else, this has done that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and I think also in, in these cases where it's just not practical to break up big companies or to create competitors out of thin air, given the given the entry costs of becoming a major uh, aircraft manufacturer, then what that means is that the only option really is to have much more careful and thoughtful regulation of these companies. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's the only way you can really get around the fact that you don't have that market competition providing that discipline. And so I think this is a case where maybe that regulation in terms of what sort of training that is that what should have been required for, for new pilots on this. And, you know, the 737 MAX 8 was basically marketed by Boeing as being something where, hey, pilots won't have to get any really additional training or not a whole lot. And from the beginning, pilots were saying, um, I think we need a little more training on this. And there's some dispute as to whether or not to the extent to which these crashes had anything to do with that. But still... I think these are these are questions you point out that are well worth uh, well worth asking. Definitely. And, I, and you know, you say the word regulation and I kind of shudder. <laughs> of course you do. I mean, I'd expect nothing less. <laughs> and, and I shudder. I, I don't I generally don't like regulation, but I think sometimes when it comes to oh, Ronald Reagan's probably turning over in his grave. But, you know, I think sometimes when it comes to things like public safety, I, I, I believe that the role of the government is to kind of stay out of things um, and to sort of get out of the way. I don't like red tape, but I think when it comes to issues of public safety, legitimate concerns and issues of public safety, and I think that this falls into that category, I do think that these are questions we need to ask. I'm not saying, you know, start signing paperwork to regulate, you know, all of these different, you know, large, huge conglomerate companies and these, you know, these, these big corporations. But what I am saying is maybe we need to start asking questions when it concerns public safety. And I'll, and I'll draw the line at public safety. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. I'll, I'll, take, I'll take what I can get for you. That's pro-regulation. <laughs> yeah, just that though. Just that. <laughs> All right. You know, before we get to our next story, I'd like to thank our, our newest Patreon monthly supporter. And that's uh, Ben, who wrote in that he loves the show and he hopes that his contribution will help us out. Uh, so thank you, Ben. It absolutely will help us out. And we appreciate it. Of course, when you become a monthly sustaining supporter of the show through Patreon, you get more than just our 
our sincerely heartfelt thanks. Supporters get access to our weekly bonus show and uh, my 12-part Nuts and Bolts of American Politics series, the last part of which I'll be posting uh, in a few days here. And there are a bunch of other things you can get at various levels of support. So uh, we hope you'll check that out if you haven't already. And that's at patreon.com slash politics guys. Okay, uh, moving on to our next story. You know, this week, President Trump proposed his 2020 budget. Uh, all kinds of things going on here. Uh, it calls for $4.7 trillion, God, it's hard for me to say that, trillion dollars in spending, $750 billion more for defense, $8.6 billion for, you guessed it, border wall construction, 722 miles of it, and major cuts in not only just about all discretionary domestic spending, but also proposed cuts in Medicare that would total $845 billion over 10 years. And even under the administration's best case scenario, which calls for what economists say are just totally unrealistically high and sustained levels of economic growth, the plan still predicts that the national debt will increase, and that's currently it's $22 trillion, that it will increase by $4.3 trillion over the next four years. And it also projects that government spending just to pay the interest on the debt will be $482 billion in the next year. And that's more than the entire budget for Medicaid. It's hard for me to say some of those numbers. So um, what, what do you think about the president's budget, Kristen? I mean, both First, I guess it, we should talk about it as a it's uh, as a legislative document, its chances in Congress, but also, and I think maybe more importantly, what it says about President Trump's priorities. Well, I think that the most important um, the most important sort of hallmark legislation of any president's term is is actually the budget. It's the thing that that I look to because I think it shows the the whether or not they're making good on their campaign promises. I think it's a bit of a referendum. And with something like this, um, I you can sort of see Trump's mind. <laughs> I don't I don't want to, you know, I, I don't know. It, you it's you don't want to get in there. I understand. But yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but um but I, you know, I think you can sort of see the inner workings of of you know what he's thinking, where he's going. I think obviously the two things that are most notable are the fact that you have this big bump in defense spending, and then you have this large amount of money allotted for the wall, which hasn't. I mean, these two things have never changed. Um, you know, the sort of two mottos, or, or or you know, the 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 two things that came up the most during his campaign were, you know, veterans, troops, more money for the troops. Um, you know, he, there's been this big focus on defense spending um, where it hasn't been and it certainly wasn't for the eight years prior. And then there, there's also, you know, obviously this issue of building a wall. And so I think that the, the, th the big takeaway for me was that these are going to be the two things that are um, preached <laughs> during the 2020 campaign. And these are also two easy things for Democrats to attack. Yeah. Um, it, it's very easy for Democrats. I, th I think they've already tried to, uh, you know, pull down this, this, uh, this narrative of building a wall, why it works. And, you know, in some ways, I think they've done an effective job. I don't think they've convinced um, a lot of people. A lot of people just, um, I think they just sort of shrug their shoulders and, you know, they're, they're willing to, he to hear both sides, but they'll, they'll sort of shrug, shrug their shoulders and they'll either vote for him or they won't vote for him in the end. But I think that 
these two issues are going into 2020 are going to be the two big issues that we hear about again the wall and defense spending um as for the deficit i find that alarming because i you know i think that uh one of one of the things that he also said during his 2016 campaign was that we were going to cut spending we were going to drain the swamp and i bought into a lot of that and so i'm looking to see how exactly that's going to play out with this budget um as somebody who supports trump but is very skeptical of him i'm skeptical of this you know burgeoning budget we're talking about you know increasing the budget significant increasing the deficit significantly and that was a big complaint i had under obama so if this just continues then that's going to be upsetting leading into 2020. yeah well i mean of course and this is in the context of a 1.5 trillion dollar tax cut which I should point out, too, that if Congress uh, makes the individual cuts that are scheduled to expire in 2025 permanent and they were that was kind of put in there under the assumption that they would just to make the, the top line number look lower, that that'll end up being a two point three trillion dollar tax cut. So when you're bringing in that much less, even if you get some amount of greater economic growth. That still means that in order to kind of balance things out, you have to do some serious cutting. And it seems like to me the priorities are pretty clearly, you know, on, well, on the wall and defense and that sort of thing. But I, one thing I wanted to point out from the policy side on defense, it's kind of interesting, the, the budget trickery that is, been, that is being proposed to get around these, the spending caps that were put into place by Congress in 2011. Now, in the past, getting around them basically required that the administration boost domestic spending. Democrats in Congress would say, well, okay, if you want to boost military spending, we want to see a one-to-one correspondence between that and domestic spending. And the Trump administration had gone along with that in the past, but this time they said, no, we're not going to do that. So what they did is, given the fact that the defense spending proposal is $750 billion, well, the actual defense caps this year under the 2011 law are like around $174 billion less than that. So to get around that, what they did is they're asking for way more money than even they admit is needed for what's called the Overseas Operations Contingency Fund. And yeah. that, that covers, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, because that pot of money doesn't count against those caps. And so, I mean, it's, right. a, it's a totally transparent sort of shell game. So it's not much of a shell game, I guess. But, uh, but, but I, thought that was, I thought that was pretty interesting. But the other thing I think is interesting is, you know, Donald Trump said he wasn't about to do anything with Medicaid, you know, no cuts to that. And these cuts, even though he characterizes this as waste, fraud and abuse, uh, is that's the kind of thing that, I mean, Democrats are, I'm loving it. I'm saying, well, that's awesome. You know, that's a, that's a wonderful issue to campaign on. You know, Donald Trump, I could throw the the camp, I mean, the Donald Trump as candidate saying he's not going to touch this. And then all of a sudden this budget's like, that's a wonderful gift. Thank you, Donald Trump, for giving Democrats that gift for 2020. We really appreciate it. So, um, but also, obviously, as a actual budget that's going to be enacted, I mean, this is a it's pretty much common now that presidential budgets are dead on arrival. Even when he had a, even when he had a Republican Congress, they yeah. said, there's no way we're cutting all these domestic agencies by this much. I mean, you know, last year it was like, well, I want to cut the EPA by a third and think the cut the state department by like a third. And then there were similar cuts this year. And of course, members of Congress of both parties, for the most part, just kind of roll their eyes and say, yeah, thanks. We're going to do our own thing. Right. I, you know, I think that, um, like I said before, this 
budgets often are a useful insight into what a what a president is thinking and yeah. and i feel like you know they campaign on these promises and it's all pie in the sky and you know they say these things to get elected as somebody who's worked on i think i think i counted like 14 campaigns wow. as of as of now it, it it's just something you hear you know you hear this from people who are running for congress people who are running for senate i've worked on a gubernatorial campaign i've worked on a presidential campaign you know you hear this a lot and you have to kind of you know you 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 have to kind of stop yourself and say, you know, am I really going to believe that all of this is going to get done? And then the budget comes out. And what you see is, you know, these, um, you know, people who ran for office on these promises, and all of a sudden, it's like reality has hit them. They've been in the quote unquote swamp for a couple of years, and they've seen how the sausage is made. And so they realize that they have to start making these unpopular choices, you know, and these things that may alienate their base. Um, and I think that, you know, Met Medicare, Medicaid, um, you know, any any sort of funding for those programs or eliminating funding is going to be a losing issue for Republicans, you know, in in when it comes to voting, yeah. because I think that Democrats have sort of, you know, run the narrative on that. And it's the, the difference is, though, I think that now you have a Republican Party that's less concerned about those issues and seems to be much more concerned about things like national security, building the wall. I mean, these are really popular issues amongst Republicans. And really, the difference is here in 2020 is going to be where, you know, your independents and, and your, your non-party affiliated people are going to be aligning themselves. Are they going to see these more, you know, sort of these general wel welfare, domestic issues like Medicare funding, Medicaid funding, things like that? Are these going to be the forefront issues or is this yeah. going to be about immigration and, you know, defense spending? I'd argue that, you know, it, what it's going to come down to is where those, you know, those sort of middle of the road people are, are going to turn what what issues they see as more important. I think Donald Trump knows that. Yeah, I, I totally agree with your uh, electoral analysis of it. And um, I guess my concern is more more and more that that's the only con that's the only concern that that we that, that they seem to be bringing up. And that, you know, I mean, when when the interest on the debt is more than the entire Medicaid budget, um, that to me is we are I, it is it is insanely irresponsible as far as i'm concerned to to essentially to put this burden on future generations and this bill comes due with interest i mean this is this is horrifically bad policy making and back when i was a republican uh, a million years ago you know there were plenty of people in the gop who who preached fiscal responsibility and really meant it you know and now it seems like you know, and of course they would talk about Democrats as being used tax and spend Democrats, but, but geez, now it seems like it's like tax cut, borrow and spend Republicans, which to my mind is, is even worse because, you know, I mean, this is, this is just horrifically irresponsible, I think. Right. And, and I, I, as a Republican, I think that, um, you know, the idea of sort of, uh, reworking Medicare and Medicaid and, you know, being able to provide to people who really need it. I, I do think that the system needs a, a serious overhaul. But, you know, for example, this budget proposed um, major cuts to Social Security. And I think that Republicans have largely won that argument against Social Security. Um, you know, it, it's it's been a long time coming, but, you know, we need to get a better system in place. And, and slowly over time, there have been several cuts made to Social Security. And I, and I think people have largely sort of forgotten the issue, um, unless you're actually on Social Security, and then it becomes an issue. And that's, that's something that we're going to have to contend with, too. But I think when it comes to, you know, 
this idea of Medicare funding in this budget, um, you know, it it presents this big issue for 2020. And again, I think it's going to be, you know, is is this something that's going to affect those middle of the road people? I think Republicans largely will agree with Donald Trump. Um, but, you know, then if he gets reelected in 2020, which I know is your nightmare scenario, <laughs> but if he gets reelected yeah. in 2020, what will become of Medicare? Um, you know, this this proposed budget makes some serious cuts. I mean, Social Security, again, we've largely kind of let that go. But but now what becomes of Medicare? Because that could be a serious problem yeah. and, uh, for Republicans in terms of policy. So, I yeah, absolutely. I always tell my students, old people vote, you know, and, and you got to you got to watch for that. So, yeah, so, yeah absolutely. All right. Uh, Let's see, moving on, you know, uh, this week we had yet another entrant into the 2020 Democratic presidential nomination contest. That's, of course, uh, Beto O'Rourke. And uh, his announcement brings the total of major candidates, at least by what I consider major candidates, up to an even dozen now. And that's, uh, by my reckoning, two from the House, and I'm including O'Rourke here, two mayors, two governors, and six, count them, six Democratic senators. So it's a, it's a crowded field, certainly. And, you know, my take on O'Rourke is that he's somewhat more moderate than a lot of the other big names in the race. And, and I like that. And of course, he nearly beat Ted Cruz for the Senate seat in Texas, which I don't I don't think there's any way that translates into Texas going Democratic for president in 2020. But still, it's, you know, it's something. Um, but what I'm not crazy about is his lack of experience in national politics. And I'm kind of more old school here in that I still believe that being governor of a big state, ideally one where you have to work with the legislature that maybe isn't you know of your party or all that willing to go along with you, I think really that's the best preparation for the presidency, though it's not like anyone can, anything can actually prepare you for the presidency. And so you know, I've been a, I've been in the Hickenlooper camp for a, a while now, and he's still he's still my guy. Not just because I love to say Hickenlooper, but that is part of it a little <laughs> bit. But yeah, I think there's also something to be said for Inslee as well. But uh, I like the governors always have. Uh, but, but anyway, uh, what do you think about O'Rourke? Oh, Robert Francis O'Rourke. Where do, where do we begin with this guy? Um, no, you know, I uh, I've had a couple of conversations with Democrat friends of mine, um, none of who are are fans of O'Rourke. Um, my so my sister actually lives in Texas, and um, she was a Ted Cruz voter. But I remember during the you know O'Rourke Cruz showdown, um, she was telling me that she was very worried that Ted Cruz was not going to get reelected. Now she lives in Dallas, which is obviously a major urban center. Right. And, you know, you have a lot of voters in those major urban centers. And I think that that's what, you know, largely gave O'Rourke his, his power at the polls. But, um, you know, when he didn't win, um, I, I was, I breathed a sigh of relief. Now, granted, I'm not the biggest Ted Cruz fan in the world. He's honestly, Ted Cruz is not the most likable candidate. Yeah. And has, <laughs> worked on campaigns. I mean, it just, I, you know, I, I agree with, with a lot of what Ted Cruz has to say. He's, he's more socially conservative than I am though. Um, but he's, you know, a, a pretty staunch, you know, constitutionalist and, and I really respect that. Um, but he's not likable and, you know, I hate to say likability goes a long way. I don't 
know that Beto O'Rourke um, or Robert Francis O'Rourke, whatever you choose to call him, is is the most likable candidate either. Um, you know, he comes with some baggage. You know, I, I think all politicians nowadays, especially with, you know, social media being as rampant as it is and, you know, people going back and looking in at yearbooks and, you know, interviewing people in your second grade class. And, you know, everybody's bound to have some skeletons in their closet. But, you know, he's got some pretty big skeletons in his closet. A DUI, what was it, in 1998? Um, you know, and some trouble there. Um, he also, like you mentioned, the, the lack of experience. Um, I grew up with uh, a dad who used to tell me exactly the same thing, that that people with executive experience, like governors, um, you know, they, they make the best presidents because they have this ability to lead and delegate. And, you know, they've led on this large scale. And, um, you know, I, I don't know that that experience is, political experience is necessary or necessarily a prerequisite for, you know, becoming president. But I, I do think that somebody who has a lack of executive experience, I think that should be questioned. And, and he certainly doesn't have any. So, um, you know, I, I hate to say I don't take work seriously, um, because, I, you know, I think a lot of people didn't take Donald Trump seriously and, and look at look at what that got them, you know. But sure. I, I, I look at him and I, I, I struggle to take him seriously because I just don't think, like you said, he has the experience. But um, he is more moderate than some of the other people who have, you know, leapt breathlessly into the race. <laughs> and, um, you know, he's, he's entertaining to watch, if nothing else. I'm, I'm definitely not a fan of Robert Francis, but we'll see. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I don't really. In fact, I kind of like the fact that he has a, a bit of a past for whatever reason. The, the sort of robotic candidates, the people who, uh, oh, yeah. who, who've been running for president since they've been 12 or something like that. And, you know, carefully building up their biography and all that kind of thing. Those, those people just, they, they make me cringe. And so many people in politics seem to be like that. And, and the fact that he seems to be at least to a certain extent, almost like a human being to the extent that a national politician can be is, is, is refreshing to me. But but it, yeah, it is the experience thing. And, and again, I agree with you that just because you're a governor doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a good president. Most people aren't going to be good presidents because it's just a, it's right. just a hell of a tough job. Um, but, but at least I think that having some success and having some experience at a lower level at least suggests that maybe you're not going to be a complete and utter disaster. So, uh, so yeah, for me, until, until I, until I hear compelling evidence otherwise from another candidate, I'm, uh, I am, I'm a Hickenlooper guy. Oh, I'll, I'll get, I'll get your Hickenlooper shirt out to you yeah, right away. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I like it. All right. You know, uh, uh, I think we have time for one more story today, and uh, it's one a lot of people have been talking about. Uh, this week, federal authorities charged, I think it was over 50 people, with taking part in a nationwide college admission scam at elite schools, uh, which it, it all kind of revolved around big bribes to athletic coaches as well as cheating on admissions exams. And in some cases, it's alleged that parents paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to help get their kids into these programs. Um, now, Education Secretary Betsy DeVos said that she's looking into whether or not uh, any Department of Education regulations were violated, and the schools involved have put on leave or fired a number of these uh, officials who were uh, allegedly part of this this scam. So, I know, Kristen, you said that you've been you've been hearing a lot about this and talking a lot about this. What's uh, what's your take on it? Well, I have to I have to put it out there that I am actually a USC Trojan, so this story hits 
probably a little closer to home than I wanted it to. Those schools, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, um, I, I will also say that I, you know, the reasons I got into USC, I'm guessing, were legitimate because I didn't pay a dime. I'm, I'm certainly paying for it now, still, <laughs> in terms of student loans. But um, yeah, I, I, I've been telling people all week, don't look at me. I didn't even buy them a cup of coffee to get in, you know. But uh, but you know, as as a Trojan, I mean, we haven't had a good year. There have been a lot of things happening at USC. But um, you know, I had a really interesting conversation. I, I'm a mom, and um, you know, I I uh, my kids are going to school and and living in an area that's you know very competitive in terms of academics. And we you know we were talking about um at work and and also you know with my mom friends and and my dad friends about you know, what exactly, why are these parents paying this much money to get their kids into school? And all I can say is that it's all about cachet. It's not so much that these kids are getting this education. It's about the cachet of saying that you went to Harvard, Yale, or, you know, USC, or, or you know, wherever these kids are getting into. And a friend of mine actually brought up a really good, uh, um, I guess, an idea for a punishment for these parents who have this, this, this money and are sort of passing this privilege on to their to their children that they should actually fund scholarships for underserved uh, kids Ooh. who get into these schools and can't otherwise go instead of going to prison or having to pay fines. I Very thought that creative. Was, yeah, I like it. I thought that was brilliant. I can't take credit for it. It it was it was one of my closest friends who who made that observation, and I thought you know I need to bring that up today. Yeah, <laughs> it was I really know, good. That is, that is good. Yeah, to me. I feel like this is obviously a, a an awful thing, and I can see why a lot of folks would be pretty upset about it. But to me, it kind of highlights the fact that we have very much a, a two tiered system. I think most in, in most polls, people say, "Well, merit should be the the only thing that determines what kind of school you get into." And and I understand that that reasoning certainly. But but to me, you know, when, when people talk about merit, they they almost always mean grades and test scores. But to me, the real scandal here, and this is a much harder thing to deal with, is the everyday advantages that the wealthy have in elite college admissions. I mean, you know, the, these these super expensive test prep services and tutors, these things can cost tens of thousands of dollars uh, to also to admissions policies from these schools that give preferential treatments to legacies or to children of major donors and that sort of thing, as well as some pretty clear links that have been established between things like, for instance, financial insecurity and lower test scores. Less, so, I mean, people who are at the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum, they're not competing on a level playing field, even absent just out and out cheating. And, and that, I think, is, is the bigger problem because no matter how you look at it in terms of a, a fairness thing, which on the left, that's kind of how I look at it, a quality thing. If you just, from the right, though, if you look at it from a, well, what sort of human capital are we not developing? There's a ton of human capital that's being underdeveloped because of this essentially two-tiered system. Right. And, you know, as somebody um, who was the first person in her family to go to college, I was the first person to go to college, go to grad school, graduate. Um, you know, I think it was an uphill battle um, for someone like me because it wasn't something that was put into my head at an early age, like you're going to college because your entire family went to college. And, um, you know, and and not, not that it wasn't encouraged. It was definitely encouraged. But I think that there were a lot of people, um, you know, I grew up in a, in a community where there were a lot of paths. And, and a lot of have-nots, I kind of fell somewhere in the middle. And, um, you know, a lot of the haves got into these great schools, not because they deserved it, but because, you know, they, they were legacies, a lot of legacies. 
life. And, um, you know, I, I think it, I think it just goes to show that this is something that's, it's not just something that's come about in the last couple of decades. This is something that's deeply flawed within our academic system. Um, and these, I think you hit the nail on the head with the idea of the socioeconomic divide because, you know, a lot of people uh, like to point fingers and say, well, it's, you know, it's about all these other things that divide us. I think the socioeconomic divide is by far the the, the biggest thing, the biggest advantage that, that the haves and the have, you know, the haves have over the have nots, I should say. Yeah. And I, and I think that this, if nothing else, outlines that and and it shows that these sort of elite schools and this is less a, even a political issue and just more again of, of questions we should be asking um you know what do we do to to reduce that is it is it is it possible to reduce the bias that some of these schools and these admission councils have against um, people who are legacies or people who have had these advantages? How do you how do you erase these advantages? I don't know that you ever could, but these are questions we need to be asking. Well, I think one way to deal with those problems specifically would be, I mean, certainly you can you can uh, change uh, education funding so that essentially anyone who gets federal student loans can apply them to a school that, that, that employs these sort of policies. So that would be a, a pretty right. straightforward policy fix. But, uh, but, but, you know, I should point out too, that this is, while this has gone on forever, to a certain extent, it's a newer problem. I mean, I, obviously it's been a few years to say the least since I, uh, since I've been in college, I've been around college students my entire life because I'm a professor. But when I, I remember when I went to take, to take the SAT and ACT and then for grad school, the GRE, I literally just signed up. And then on the day of the test, I went there and I took the test. My right. test prep was zero. I mean, I spent literally no time test prepping. I just figured you just go and need to take the test. And back, well, back even then, a lot of people thought that was kind of a, somewhat of a little bit of a lackadaisical kind of thing. You know, you go to the bookstore and buy a book and look it over. But but my point is, is this industry has really just become a huge thing. And, you know, back 30 years ago, it was a lot more realistic for maybe some poor kid to be able to buy a test prep book. And, and then it was a little more equal. But now the sort of advantages and the sort of things, the sort of systems that have been developed to systematically advantage children of the elite, it just, it just really, it, it, the system is just so bifurcated now. And that is by far the much more difficult problem, because even if you eliminate things like legacies and, and some of these other policies that schools have, how do you deal with that? There's not a real good way to deal with that without getting at a lot more of these core problems, which are obviously super tough to deal with. And I and I think um, I have a, a very, another very good friend who's um, she's more liberal leaning, but she um, was on a uh, a college admissions board, and she worked with kids. She still works with kids um, trying to get into you know these elite schools, and um, she's often told me about how problematic it is that um, you know we have for example, kids within a certain area, all attending a certain school, all getting into the same sort of elite schools and how the idea of quotas from schools have, have been put in place. Like for example, um, the, the public school for the, where my home is zoned, um, the, the closest public school, um, it's in South Florida. And we have 
uh, a large number of kids who go to the University of Florida, which is a very good, you know, public university. And a, a lot of kids is sort of a feeder school for that. And um, they've had to really restrict uh, the, the numbers of kids coming from that particular high school and going to the University of Florida. And so you've seen a lot of these kids who, you know, quote unquote, deserve to go, so they say, not getting into places like University of Florida or more elite schools, you know, and private schools because of these caps or these quotas. And, you know, I think, um, you know, I think that maybe that's a step in the right direction um, in terms of trying to level the playing field. Um, but then you don't, you, you know, these kids will get into good schools and not that they shouldn't get into good schools. You know, it's not necessarily their fault that they're, you know, they may have worked really hard, but they also had these advantages. And if nothing else, it's, it's got to be, it's got to be a conversation that we have with these schools. What are we doing to better, you know, it starts, it starts at the very beginning of a child's education. What are we doing to sort of raise up these, um, these poor performing schools in these low income areas, what can we do to make those schools better so that these kids are set up on the right track? Oh, yeah. um, and I think, I think we're, I think we're, we're making strides. Um, but I, I don't think we're nearly doing enough. And that, I think that that's the most distressing thing of all is how young it starts and how, you know, these kids who go to these good schools from the very, very beginning have these advantages. Yeah. I mean, that, I, I, yeah, we could do, we could, we could do definitely a whole, a whole show on that. I mean, just don't even get me started on funding funding public schools through local property taxes. That just drives me nuts. But that's, a, that, again, I don't want to get into the, talk yeah. about a driver of inequality, but, uh, but anyway, uh, but an yeah, idea yeah <laughs> definitely, definitely, because I have some pretty strong opinions about that. And that would be, that would be, uh, that would be great to talk about that and vouchers and a bunch of other things. So, uh, but anyway, on that, on that note, I think we'll, uh, we'll wrap up. Uh, but actually I should point out that, uh, that as soon as Kristen and I are done recording this show, we're going to be doing our special supporters only exclusive bonus show. And so if you are a supporter, that should be in your podcast app by the time you hear this. Uh, if I'm you know, doing my job right, if you're not a supporter and you'd like to get a listen to that, well, you can become a supporter by going to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash politics guys. Now subscribing to the show also really helps us out as does sharing episodes uh, and leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes. So if you can do that, that would be really great. We would appreciate it. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Bruce Johnson, Will Moreno, and Benji Fishman. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.